Welcome to BC's Corner, episode six. We're back, BC's Corner, episode six. I believe our fourth uh, guested conversation. And man, oh man, do we have something for you today. Recession has been in the cultural and political conversation for some time now. And in the last few months and few weeks especially, we have seen the expectation the fear and the impact of that fear play out in real time. As companies lay off large percentages of their staff and others brace for impact, the question in times like these, for those of us who are seeking to create our own preferred features, is how best to respond. It's a very personal but important conversation to have. And for that reason, I've brought on someone who not only has a tenured career, but the wisdom to match. My guest for today, Brett Kilpatrick, is a sales and marketing expert. He's been an executive in nine startups, raised five rounds of venture funding, been the head of sales in four IPOs, served as an officer in three public companies, brought three European companies to the United States, and taken five U.S. companies into Europe and Asia. He has personally managed and coached more than 500 sales and marketing professionals, of which I am one of, and he's directly generated over $1 billion in revenue of software services and systems. Brett is currently the managing partner of XXL Consulting and currently resides in Dallas, Texas. So we talk career development, his sales and marketing methodology, the true way to recession-proof your career, and his wisdom and best practices on how to persevere in the midst of seemingly extraneous circumstances. Y'all, we had a ton of fun in this conversation, and I can't wait for you to join us. Here we go with Brett Kilpatrick. Brett Kilpatrick, it is a joy to have you on the show. I was reading your official biography in preparation for this conversation, and it refers to you as a big man with a big heart. And I just have to take a minute to affirm that. Uh, one of the joys of my career so far was my time at Simply Be, a digital marketing firm based in Chicago that uh, we developed personal brands for high net worth individuals and leaders of organizations. And what I love so much about my time there is that I always had the opportunity to come into contact with interesting people. And you were one of those interesting people. It felt like our meeting was seemingly by chance. I was co-leading a sales call and you just kind of, um, you were advising a bit at the time and you just sat in on that call, you know, giving feedback and everything. You extended the invitation just to come into a deeper relationship. I think almost the last two years, every Friday, um, agnostic from, you know, company and all of that. We've just been connecting on a career front, on a personal front. And so I just have to thank you for the presence that you've been to me, giving me, I call you sometimes my sage of giving, you know, wise advice. And I think it's just fitting to have you on the show. Oh, uh, thank you, Brian. I'm, I'm delighted to be on the show. You flatter me. I have really enjoyed our conversations and, uh, and, and I enjoy our relationship. I hope that, uh, that I can, impart some more sage wisdom to you uh, today, but, uh, but thanks for giving me the chance to talk. And speaking of your bio, so you've been an executive in nine startups. You've raised five runs, rounds of venture capital funding. Uh, you've been the head of sales in four IPOs. You've served as an officer in three public companies. You brought three European companies to the United States, and you've taken five companies into Europe and Asia. I, I say all that to say that you clearly know a thing or two. 
about sales and about organizational development. And I look at your educational background and you have a bachelor's of science from Purdue University. And that's your only degree. Um, not to say that, you know, success is measured by how many degrees you do or do not have, but I think it's worth acknowledging the contributing factors to the success in your career. And I ask you, because you've had such a storied career, a career that I continuously learn from, what got you this far is my question. I appreciate the question. I, I, I have had, uh, I've been blessed. And uh, with with my career, uh, I, I got into technology at, at the right time. I, I actually came out of Purdue and opened the first Apple computer store in the Midwest. So that was my first taste of, of uh Technology. I, I think when you look at, at uh, my background, my dad was in the military. I've lived all, all over the world, uh, which makes uh, flying around. And, and you know, I speak German and I lived in Germany for six years. And and so doing international travel and, and I've, I've done business in 37 different countries. So uh, so I, I think I was born to the the, the traveling uh, that it takes. And, and pre-university is a, is a fine school. Everybody thinks of it as engineering, but the biology, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I had no idea that I was allergic to cats and uh, that I I have a certain respect for large animals and they have a certain respect for me. Uh, <laughs> like, like, damn, you're big. And, and they say, damn, you're big. So, <laughs> but but um, You're 6'5", by the way. I don't think people won't be able to see how tall you are. You're 6'5". Well, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I blot out the sun. You know, I, I, I am a big guy, but, um, I, I think that, uh, that my education taught me a, a couple of things in, in biology. You think of everything as a system, get a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, math and, and, uh, you know, science and, and those kind of things. So it primed me for a technology career after I got my degree in 80, then I, I actually stayed another, got a counselorship at one of the dormitories and stayed and, and took all business classes the the next year uh it was in the middle of the carter recession which you know there was a the, the real the real downturn then so i didn't want to go watch test tubes and eli Lilly. i wanted to to be in business so i i did that and then ended up working for a fraternity brothers father so so i think when when you look at my education it's it's more looking as i mentioned heavy on math heavy on science technology i mean i i was programming computers uh, in 1975 in, in high school type of thing. So dipped in it and then just being taught how to think at a, at a strong university. And so you're, you're now a senior executive leader. And I always wonder at, at what point in your career, did you know that sales was where you wanted to live and where you would develop and where you would grow? Well, it, it, it it's a great question because when your dad's in the military, and you're living on a base, you go and buy everything at the PX. I had no idea before I went to college that you could actually haggle with people over price uh, and, and doing these kind of things. It, it just was foreign to me, and but it wasn't foreign to my nature. And so I, when I when I got out of school and went to work, opened the first Apple computer store. I had a, a mentor there, uh, Howard Ackler. Uh, who I owe a lot to teaching me about business, real business. Took me to the Merchandise Mart, for instance, uh, there in Chicago, because we had a store room and we sold desks and things like that. And it had me understand the way pricing works, for instance. And I was amazed. And uh, I started trying reading books and, and uh, trying to understand about the sales thing. 
And what I found out was I was uh, pretty comfortable with it. You know, when, when you're uh, when you're Irish and German, uh, the German does the technology, and the Irishman's full of shit. So, uh, oh, I'm sorry, my allowed to. You're allowed to cast. It's fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, so it was it was a per- perfect ethnic mix for me to be in in technology, and, and I, I really I I really enjoyed being introduced to sales and and uh, where I really really found my next my next position was that control data control data had been spun off uh or a portion of it had been spun off there was a consent decree back in the 70s where a judge actually broke up ibm before antitrust and they put pieces of ibm in different companies they were called a bunch burroughs univac ncr control data and honeywell so i went to the to the original cloud-based it was called time sharing at the time and uh i got sent to school for two different sessions for 13 weeks apiece in terrytown new york the training that i got on sales was amazing ibm training it was actually honeywell kiss a real classic training so so it's it's almost like i went to juilliard from a sales nobody nobody makes an investment in sales like that today at all and and I was trained under under the, the the very best at the time, and I loved it. And I found out I was pretty good at it because I was I was a mix of what today would be called a trusted advisor or a subject matter expert. I really understood the products. I built the first computer that I sold, uh, which was a Heathkit Z eighty nine. But then and then I found that I, I like to deal with people and ask questions, and and so the sales part kind of flowed naturally. I always had a negative point of view about a negative feeling when it came to sales until I, you know, of course, got that first check from selling something. And I was like, oh, crap, like this is where the money is. Why do you think there's that negative connotation when it comes to sales? Because I think you you spoke to it a bit earlier where you said the Irishman's full of shit. Can you say more to that? You know, I, I think people have bad experiences in sales when they think about buying a car. And there's the used car salesman. He's got white shoes, white belt. In fact, that was a, a big joke. One of the positions that I had was called a sales director for, at the time, Anderson Consulting, and then which got spun off to call it Accenture when Anderson uh, Accounting uh, died because of Enron. So they brought me in because they wanted salespeople to train and to, to lead because Anderson or Accenture was developing a product. This was in the... Um, the late 80s. And so you were working with very senior partners who were the real salespeople in, in Accenture. And then they brought in these people. And I, I had to define myself as a lot of added value because everybody had this pre- prejudice that salespeople were slicksters, tricksters, white belt, white shoes, try and make you slip up, try and make you sign you know, a document, all this kind of stuff. When, uh, for instance, we did a uh, we did a deal with Sprint where or Accenture wrote the whole billing system for Sprint that was out of Kansas City. It was over $100 million. That's not, that took a long process to sell. And I, we convinced the, the, the partnership at Accenture that sales directors that we had were really good at value because we, we helped control the process. We were very professional salespeople. And they saw us in a different way, but but I think historically, to back to your your question, and I've worked very hard in my career to differentiate myself, and I'm very proud to have been to be a salesperson and to train sales 
but you differentiate yourself by adding great value and enlisting well and asking questions as opposed to using tricks to try and get to have somebody purchase something that they don't want or don't need. And you have this philosophy that everyone is in sales, no matter where you are, where you find yourself in the PNL of your company or in the org chart, you are part of selling the experience or the product of that company. Can you speak more to that specifically to people who are salespeople, but then those who are not directly selling? Yeah. Uh, thank you for that, that question, because that that is one of my, my mantras. Everybody's in sales. When you have an organization and you're offering products, whether it's a business to consumer or business to business, Every touch with the buyer, to me, is a sales call. It has to be looked at it that way. It's not just when the salesperson is in front of them, but if they call in for support, that's an experience that they're going to remember. That's that's an impression that they're going to have of the company. Even when they open a, a box of, of something, you know, you open an iPhone or, or all just the whole presentation of what you might be getting, that, that's a sales call. That, that's an impression that you're getting of the care that the company takes or, or doesn't take. Whether you're the C-level or the salespeople or the guy in shipping, doing a job well and making a good impression on a customer you're selling. You're selling the company. You're selling an experience. You're selling a, a solution, and, and you're you're always selling value. So 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 that's why I, I say that. And, and when companies understand that, if you're a salesperson and you're getting some really good deep questions, shut up as a salesperson. Go get the engineer that wrote the code. You know, go get the head of development. Or, or go get you know go get an, a subject matter expert who's not a salesperson to come in as part of your sales cycle and to comment on these things and that trusted advisor relationship they'll the, the customer will believe what what's being told then the salespeople person becomes a facilitator for bringing the right resources in the company to the buyer or to the multiple buyers and that's where you get that everyone in sales because in business to business, Everything is almost these days purchased by committee. And so it's a multi-touch, multi-contact, multi-event sales cycle. And you can't do it yourself as a salesperson. Why would you bring in your unfair advantage, which is the other people that are in sales in your mind, but the customer doesn't think they're salespeople. They don't doubt their veracity. And I think that same mantra, I think it, it does apply when it comes to B2B sales, when it comes to business to consumer sales. I also think it plays a part in how you map out your career yourself and how you interact with those within your company, because decisions are rarely, like you said, made by one person. There's always someone that you have to convince. And so looking at your career, you've had this sort of, I won't call it nonlinear, but you've stayed at jobs for a year. You've stayed at jobs for three years. You stayed at jobs for two years. That's not very uncommon to this present generation. What would you say to the the notion, because people do believe this, that millennials and Gen Z were not staying at jobs long enough to make a mark. People are expecting that seven to 10 year loyalty. And really, you know, what's more common is to stay for two to three years. Do you have a perspective on that and how it impacts the, the experience you have of developing your own career? Uh, very much so. First off, in some jobs, like in technology, if you're with the same company for six or eight years, what's wrong with you? Are you broken? You can't advance yourself. You can't get a better job. You know, this this type of thing, there's a little stigma in, in some different markets 
about people that are with the company for too long. So uh, Taylor's story uh, that probably illustrates this best. So I was interviewing to become the the worldwide VP of sales for a company called um, that had a product that was for logistics, trailer tracking, and and uh, uh, it was it's called uh, IDSY. And so I was talking with one of the board members, Harry Copperman, who was an IBMer, 30 years with IBM. And he's looking at my resume and he's and doing the same thing. He's saying, well, geez, look at your resume. You've a couple of years here, a couple of years there. Here's when you were there six years. That was really good. But, you know, what's the matter? You can keep a job. So my response to him was, Harry, my dad was in the military. We went all over the place. My dad had a different job every year. Tell, tell me a little bit about your career at IBM. Uh, because I'll bet if I know IBM, because I did know IBM, because I took this training, you know, I was part of IBM at uh, Control Data uh, yeah. before I left there. Uh, I said, Harry, did you find yourself out in the field selling and then you'd take a staff position and then you'd go out in the field. And when you went out in the field, you went from a rep, you went to a branch manager, then you went to a regional manager and you're now you're in doing this. So you're running this ladder at IBM. Is that not true? He's like, well, yeah, that's exactly how it works at IBM. You climb up the ladder, taking different jobs and positions. I said, I said in technology that we have right now, Big companies like that that make those investments or have those people, and I, I didn't, I didn't get hired. I'm a technologist, and I'm looking at these different technologies. So what I did, Harry, was I modeled what you did within mm-hmm. IBM by building my own ladder. Look, look at those positions, and, and you tell me my quotas were higher, my responsibilities were higher, the markets that I was in were more vibrant. So I just moved myself up, just like you did. You did it within a company. I did it within a market. And that he's like, sold. I got it. Completely understand. And so so if you have millennials or you have anybody that's trying to better themselves and move up, whether they're on their way to a position that they really like, like, like I was the CEO of a public company. I hated it. The investor relationships, all the stuff. Some little old lady from Minot, North Dakota, with five shares of stock calling me up and telling me how to run the business. I know. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You know, <laughs> I, I, I hated it. I, I, it was, but the VP of sales and or sales and marketing is, is exactly what I like because I'm cheek to cheek with the customer. You know, I've got salespeople that we're doing all this. So when you build your ladder on moving up or finding the sweet spot on where you want to be, I, I don't, I don't see any embarrassment if you can show and if you can rationalize for yourself that you're you're actually you're you're building your strengths to ultimately be where you want to be or to find out where you want to be. You know, I thought I was I thought I wanted to do this, but I did a three year stint over there. Now if you're with a place for six months, unless the place gets went out of business, that's a problem. That yeah. means you can work out. But as a salesperson, if you're with that company for a complete revenue year, where you know, let's say you come in in September, you're there the whole year you make your number and then you decide now to move on and do something else. I can rationalize that. Did you perform when you were there? Did you do what they paid you to do? Yes. And then what did you do? Well, I took a position now that had three people reporting to me. Okay. I'll do that. Uh, I'll, I'll buy into that. So, so that kind of model, if you're modeling your business, if you're shrewd enough to do it yourself, or if you have a coach or someone that can help you think about your, your, what your model is, in your career ascension, 
then it makes it makes perfect sense. Or if you get bored, that's okay too, and move to another to another business to fill out your portfolio. There's no shame in that too, if you can rationalize it to yourself and to other people who are, for better or not, judging you on how how your career is going. And there's something you said about sales and marketing. Use sales uh, in conjunction with marketing. And I know your philosophy on this, that there is a continuum between sales and marketing. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, sales and marketing is a continuum. And, and what's the joke if if you're a if you remember the Blues Brothers back, you know, when they're they're at the uh, they're at Bob's and they're they're playing music and they say, yeah, we we know we know country and western type of thing. It's it's same, you know, tongue in cheek. It's sales and marketing because the truth of the matter is, especially now, who's to say where sales starts, marketing began, and sales starts because if you're going to purchase something, right, and you're going to do a little research, what do you do? I Google. You go, of course. It's what everybody does. They, You have access to all the information, maybe even more information than I have because you know your business and now you're going to you're going to blend that with information that you're looking at. Whether you're doing something from a consumer point of view or a business point of view, you Google stuff. You start your own buyer's journey by Googling things. Whether you have a pain and you're looking for solutions, you don't even know what the name of the solutions are, or you know exactly kind of what you want because it's not non-specific, or you have an opportunity. Well, how do I make hay out of out of this opportunity? There you go. You go straight to Google. So when you look at this continuum from between sales and marketing, from interest development to education and then to conviction, when one of the tricks of of being well, let me let me take one a little aside. So I'm a salesperson. I'm a sales professional. I have had sales and marketing report to me in many capacities. I completely understand sales and marketing together in this continuum. But if you cut me in half like a tree and looked at the rings, I'm a, I'm a sales guy. It, it just is what it is. But in understanding marketing and understanding that there are many, many things that today that are transactional sales, you do the research. Then you go on Amazon or Walmart or whatever. You find the cheapest price. You you put your credit card in. You buy it. That's transactional sales. Salespeople used to do that. They're called retail salespeople. But now you buy it online. Their job's going away. The position that's that's out there right now is either a consultative salesperson or an enterprise salesperson to help organize, to help continue to to educate and to bring the right resources to larger decisions for for businesses. So when you look at what needs to be done there and where that salesperson or sales team enters in, that's one of the challenges is to find out, well, how much has this, has this customer or this team of people that's evaluating what the, uh, an offering, how much do they really know? It's, it's, it's like trying to change tires on a car uh, going down the Dan Ryan at, at 70 miles an hour. I mean, you get this moving thing coming at you and you're trying to jump in assess the situation, catch up with them, change the things that they they made mistakes about, expand their knowledge, and of course, trying to gain competitive advantage and all this. So it, it's a real, first off, it's a team game. This is not singles tennis. This is, you know, this is for, for the, big, the big fish. This is basketball at a minimum, soccer 
you know, football at a, at a, you know, on your way, you may have large teams, but where it is on that continuum and catching it correctly is, is a skill that really good salespeople have because it is continuum and it's not laid out for you. Customers don't come with you to you with a map and say, well, here, here's where I am on my map. Can you just pick me up right here? I, I'm out in Schaumburg. Could you get me back back into the city? You know, this kind of, it doesn't work that way. You've got to figure out, you started in Elgin. What, how, how did you get there? No, 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 you, you're all wrong. You know, I'm 55 and, you know, and most, you know what I'm, what I'm saying. That's where the professionalism comes in too, is understanding that buyer's journey because the buyer's journey goes through sales, through marketing into sales com- completely. That's a long way around the block. Here, Brian, I hope I answered your question. You did. And I would ask the difference between a career in sales and a career in marketing. What is that defining difference? Depends on what you're selling. Sometimes they're one and the same. Now, you know, if you're in consumer products, typically you're not staying at the grocery store pitching Philadelphia cream cheese, right? But you're in the background doing the, you know, you're doing the brand campaigns or the the shelf presentation or your, or you're doing commercials or whatever. Um, so there, there is marketing that doesn't face to face touch the consumer, but you're still selling back to my analogy of I'm a sales guy. So I always think of things as, as selling actually let's, let's put a better point on it. My most successful engagement with you is if you buy something from me, not if I sell something to you, if you buy something from me, do you see the semantics? Yeah. So, so when, so people say, what's your best closing technique? My best closing technique is to have, to have a buyer look at me and go, when can I start? And you have this here on Tuesday. They want it. You've, you, you convince them that they, they need it, that the price is right, that, that, uh, that you've, you've taken the risk out of the, the issue and, and all those, those type of things. So, Marketing is selling, it's just at a distance. And if you use distributors, then it's just selling through other people. You're selling, you're, you're, you're addressing issues, opportunities, things that customers have that need this, they have pain. The start of this was, if you don't want to be cheek to cheek with the customer, but you're still selling, or, or let's put it this way, whether you're selling or marketing, they're still buying. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, that's the end game to this whole thing is, are they buying? So we've talked a bit about your career, your philosophy when it comes to to selling. And now people listening to this conversation who are more in the developing years of their career, they look at a career like yours and they say, you know, how am I able to achieve that with the obstacles of the present economy post-pandemic? And before you jump in, like, I want to acknowledge that you've lived through your fair share of recessions. You know, the dot-com bubble burst, the Great Recession of 2009, the Gulf War recession, the energy crisis in the 80s. So how, in a sense, do you, I I don't want to say respond to a recession, but it feels like a lot of what we're receiving right now are the fears of an incoming recession and a lot of the reactions without necessarily the reality. So how do you navigate that as a young professional? As a young professional. First off, let's just look at some financial facts. If you look at the Fortune 500 today versus what the first Fortune 500 was 50 years ago, I don't know the exact number. If I ask you how many of the companies are the same, it's not many. Like 10%. You know, there's not a lot that are the same. And if you look at the ones that are highly successful, 
a large percentage of them, more than half of them, were started during a recession. The companies that become really successful typically are started in the fire. They're tempered like steel because they had a really good value proposition. They had something that was not a nice to have, but it was a must have. And they were convincing the customers that this was a a must have. So when you look at the disposable income or the budgets that people have for capital and expense, and people really scrutinizing them hard because it's a recession, you can dance on Broadway. If you're right there on 42nd Street, then that's the big time. And so if, if you... If you have a value proposition and you can craft it, that people want to have that even when money is scarce, then when the good times come, then, well, then just open the uh, the windows, the, the fish will jump, in the, jump right in the boat, you know, type of thing. So this actually makes you, makes you tougher, you know, and what doesn't kill you, you know, makes you stronger kind of thing. So and has that been evidenced in your own career? Because you've lived through, I mean, not to say that what we're going through now is just so unique, but this is a pattern. You know, this recessions aren't just something that pop up out of nowhere, but they are something that they they come through the cycle of the American oh. economy and, and life in general. Is I didn't like the jobs that were out there for a biologist. Uh, I went an extra year of school in 81 and then took a, a job in a startup for a computer. The hell is that? You know, I took a risk, but it was something that was really interesting for me. So there's there's a start in 2008 and 2009. I took a license from a company that had that was withdrawing from the. Well, I was I was the CEO of a German company, a startup, and funded by Siemens, and they were pulling out of the United States. The board had decided to pull out of the United States, so I could either move to Germany or stay in the United States. I love Germany. Love the people, love the the business climate there. It's all good, but I'm an American and, and happy to to stay here. So what I did was I took a license, and a good friend of mine and I started a business that had to do with um, longitudinal medical health data and doing statistics and offering that data licensing or uh, type of, of license with it. And we did really well because it was something that people really wanted to to have, which was. Medicare and Medicaid was cutting a billion, $5 billion. I think it was a billion, $5 billion out of that market. And, uh, and here we go. So they had to get leaner and meaner. And so that was a perfect product for, for that amount of time. So that was the time when I went out on my own. I took the greatest risk was to self fund it type of thing. So there's, there's an example. And when you look at, when you look at the things that were going on, I like to take risks. I also, with all the startups, as you've seen. The other thing is that um, you're familiar with a, with a classical market curve where you're selling first to the crazy and desperate, the early adopters, early majority, middle majority, late majority, and then the Luddites, you know, that, that type of curve. Yeah. My whole business has been selling new technologies, typically to the crazy and the desperate and the early adopters. Because being a tech guy, being a science guy, a STEM guy, I was able to, and, and, and understanding value selling, I was always able to articulate the reasons why this will save you money, make you thinner, you know, whatever the, you know, better looking, more dates, you know, whatever, whatever it is personally or the business needs in there and, and doing that kind of value selling. So a recession is, doesn't scare me. You just have to work harder. And frankly, People that were competitors who don't have a good value proposition, it calls the herd. I mean, there's there's less com- competition out there uh, if you really look at it. If you have something that's compelling and you present it that way. 
And one thing that I've been paying attention to are the big layoffs that are happening in certain industries, specifically in tech, where people are slashing their business development departments, they're slashing (laughs) recruiters, uh, they're slashing marketing and communications and DEI. A lot of people are kind of saying, where do I go from here? I did a little bit of a a mini focus group of about 25 people and they're age 24 and on the higher end, 65 and I asked them, you know, what are your biggest questions or fears about the current state of the economy, specifically the corporate reaction to the economy? Because that's more so what people are experiencing now. For those who are experiencing layoffs or fear that they are in danger of experiencing layoffs, one, I mean, not that you're looking at every single companies and you have access to their PLs, but <laughs> do you believe layoffs at this point are warranted just from your point of view of where you're sitting? But then how do you deal with a layoff? How do you make yourself indisposable? Well, take that in a couple bites. <laughs> um, if, if you look at technology, which is where I'm most familiar in, in some consumer groups, product stuff, and and like some companies just died in the in COVID, right? I mean, they they were effectively shut down by the government. The government decided to pick and choose who 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 wins and who loses. Slappy's uh, bait shop and hardware store wasn't allowed to open. It's out of business now. The Home Depot open. You know that type of thing, and the government made those choices. So I can't speak to that, but some of the ones that were, some of the companies that were allowed to be open, and especially in technology, they hired like drunken sailors. I mean, faster than you can imagine. And they overshot the mark. So this is a reasonable connection. You talk about Microsoft, they laid off 10,000 people. Well, you had 211,000 employees. That's 5%. They went over the mark a little bit. They pulled back on 5%. I mean, that's the way things go. You overshoot, you retract a little bit, you re, you realign, you do these kind of things. No, normal business. That doesn't scare me at all. What scares me a little bit is retirement, things like that. Not necessarily for me, but for, for all the people that work their butt off. You know, and, and, and for me, I mean, yeah. I've got a decent retirement, but I'm a sales guy. There's no pension for sales guys. I don't have a, a collective bargaining agreement that the NBA is going to pay us also. It just doesn't work that way. Those kind of fears are a concern because we're all living longer. From the point of view of, of my business, all I have to do is sharpen my knife and make sure that people understand that when they retract and they lay off marketing, for whatever reason, people fire salespeople. Uh, they do that. and But if you grow the top line, if you have more salespeople, but there's cost controls and things like that. But you have to make people understand the value of sales and marketing, and you just have to do it better. So as a consultant, I have to be better in pitching people and showing them the value of me coming in and honing their salespeople better, of increasing, contracting their sales cycle, increasing their sales. And and uh, because there there is a way, there's a death spiral that companies can get in when they fire all their salespeople. They don't have anybody to go out and touch the customer. If, if, and, and if they have a product that has high value, the customers will still buy it. They may pay a little bit less for it, but they'll still buy it. And so just cutting off your distribution, well, that can kill the company. And I tell you lots of companies that cut sales and marketing first. Uh, and, uh, and they were left with an unbelievable product that they couldn't tell anybody about it. Uh, and that was because they let go of all their subject matter experts, value experts. Exactly. Right. So the best company, the best people shine in tougher times because they, they hone their message and, and they, they do things better when things are like, like a year ago in the real estate market, 
my dog could have had a real estate license and been selling properties. Now he's very clever. He's very persuasive. I've taught him a lot of other <laughs> tricks, you know, but uh, but but the tricks he has are sit, roll over, you know, catch <laughs> a fire, crawling out, you know, those those type of those type of tricks. There there are no tricks in sales. There, truly, there are no tricks in sales. Uh, and then people are always like, "Well, what's what's the trick in sales?" There's no trick. It's a profession, right? You practice it. It's a skill. You work on all the skills that come along with the sales, and so. If you can, I, I happened upon a special that was Dave Chappelle after, I think it's like 10 years ago. I want to say 10, 12 years ago. Remember when he walked away from the big Netflix from his show and he went to South Africa to find himself and all that. Yeah. So he, um, he comes back and they set up a conversation with him and Maya Angelou. It's the most amazing thing that you'll ever see. Dave Chappelle and Mia Angelou talking to each other. It really is. It's, you have to see it. But the thing that I really loved about it, and it reminds me about in this, they're talking about skills and, and getting better and all, is watching the two of them who are very, they're, they're, they're both brilliant people. There's no doubt. They both command the English language very well in different ways. They both, they're, they're both observers and all, but especially Mia Angelou, her active listening skills. Watching her listen to Dave Chappelle, non-verbally and verbally, on, on the way that she was speaking with him and listening, just reminded. I, I, I'm I'm talking to my wife uh, Denise, and we're, we're watching this. And I'm like, man, that just just tells me, Brett, you got to be a better listener. You really have to. It's a listening's a skill, and there's lots of skills that are in sales. So when I say everybody's in sales, you're always pitching your own ideas. Even in your corporate America, you're not selling to someone else. You're selling you to, to someone else. But the other thing is that really good salespeople, they get in the batting cage and, and they, you know, and they, and they, they take a hundred pitches after the game, they go stand on the foul on the free throw line and they shoot a hundred foul shots. They practice their trade and, and being an active listener is one of the biggest skills in the trade of sales. And so if you want to be in sales and you want to do well in an organization, even if you're in the head of manufacturing or something like that, work on those skills, like, like listening. Uh, I have you speak to the, the entrepreneur, the person that owns their own shop. Maybe they're a physical therapist. Maybe they have their own marketing and communications shop. What they're experiencing is the difficulty that they are not only the subject matter expert and the creator of the product, but they also have to sell the product and make sure that they're getting paid with their worth. Probably not so much when it comes to like, you know, a medical service, like, you know, physical therapy, but yeah. more in the marketing and the communication space. What would you say to encourage those people who find themselves inadequate as a salesperson, inadequate at asking for their worth, inadequate at probably knowing what their true value is, especially in a time of recession when you really need to pump the value? Interesting question. I'm thinking about that. Where I would start is they have to understand the first thing they have to do is understand their customer. They have to understand the way their buyer buys stuff. Why did they come in? What were they drawn to? Did they see them in the, did they Google them? Did they see them in a billboard driving by? Is it word of mouth? You know, how does that interest come in? And then what education do they have? How, how does their customer learn things? And one of the ways you can be a force multiplier is with good marketing. You can have a little video, something that of all, all the questions 
that, that typically get asked. So here's a here's a fact video, something like that, so that you, the, the salesperson and the owner and the subject matter expert doesn't have to do the same conversation a hundred times. People just go to your website and they watch it. You know, so, so there's technology that can help there too. And the other thing in understanding that process with the with with your customer is is getting them to buy, understanding what the conversion is from the education. I, I know enough about. I want this service. I, I, I'm convinced that that uh, that I want to do business with these people. And that that conversion over to conviction and understanding what is the psychology of of that conversion. So they can use tools to do all this, or they may be the closer, but maybe they're just the closer and they do that last conversion, which is uh, mitigating the risk or putting the personal touch to it or just, or just asking for the order. Sometimes people just want to be asked for the order. And so there's, they're standing there waiting for, Hey, do you want to go out on a date? You know, that, that type of thing. They're not going to volunteer but they really do. They really want to go forward uh, with that type of thing. So again, there's lots of tools to uh, to do things, but but understanding your buyer's journey, understanding the way people buy and what their motivations are. When you've got a small company, you, yes, you have to be, you open the door in the morning, you close it at night. You're the chief cook and bottle washer, as my, <laughs> my, my dad used to say, but really understanding your customer, that's what people want these days because because again, back to a question you asked earlier, with the internet, they've got all the information. They know what all the options are. They want people to understand what their journey is, uh, even though they don't call it a buyer's journey. And they want people to, to answer the questions and make them feel like they're they're doing the right thing because we're, we're all humans and, and many of the buyers are dependent buyers and they want to buy from people that they like. So we've talked about recessions in a way, the corporate response, but also the opportunity we have to really use it as that moment to really grind, to really show up uh, and to really push for new results and to take risks. Like it really is that opportunity. The one thing kind of list of responses I got from people uh, regarding like their fears when it comes to the current state of the economy, the last being, uh, and we've hit on all of them so far, but the fear of who we elect into political office as a reaction to economic conditions. And I'm not asking you to reveal, you know, where you stand, but because you've lived such a life and you've done so many things, what have you seen as uh, the true impact of who is in the White House or who is controlling Congress on how you've navigated your career? Is it a non-factor? Is it something that, yeah, it's over there, but it doesn't really, you know, impact what I'm doing? Or is it really a determining factor? I love the question, and, and I'll answer with a, a saying from my my first accountant, Lenny Mason. Lenny was an ex IRS agent, MBA, master's in accounting. And when I met Lenny, he was well into his sixties, but he was this sage, wizened old guy. And I would I'd go in and I, Lenny, my God, they changed the tax code and this and that, and and back in the days when you could lease a car and deduct it, and then you couldn't do it, you know, all this. Stuff and he said, he said, Brett, here, essentially, you've got a first world problem. You know, you've got a high class problem. And he said, you go make as much money as you can. I'll sort out the the tax code. I'll sort the politics mm. out. Uh, so you go make as much money as you can. You push the top line and quit worrying about stuff because this is where because I'm not a trust fund baby. You know, nothing like that. Everything I have 
you know, is all on my own other than having loving parents and a good education. So in confidence, but just going out and, and that's what I did. It would just push the top line and, uh, and, and we'll sort it out and make, make good choices and, you know, those type of things. So I, I don't think in the United States, because fundamentally, even with all the craziness that goes on going on right now, we're still a capitalist. You still have the opportunity to go and make a lot of money and be whoever you want to be. In, in fact, the, the, the people, as, as I look at the people that are really strong, in the U.S., many of them have stories that you would say, how could they ever have gotten to where they are? But it was the adversity that made them different, made them step out. You know, their comfort zone, they didn't have a comfort zone because they didn't get fed when they were kids. You know, <laughs> you, you know that you know that that type of thing. Or, or they came from other disadvantaged type of things. And then they just step out and then there they are. And then just get past all the gimmicks. Just work your butt off. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's it. And, and to take risks and be confident in yourself. I, I love this. And I love that you were able to make the time to come on BC's corner, uh, in our conversations. Yes. We talk work, we talk sales, we talk marketing, we talk business development. Uh, but we also love to cover a hot topic or two. And I, we picked one just for this conversation. Hot, hot topic. Okay. <laughs> just, a, just a little hot topic, just something a little fun. Who's, uh, got, the, who's got the best best hot dog in uh, Chicago? Is that it? Oh, wait, do we oh, want that? Opened, wait, they, go ahead. They opened, they opened a Portillo's uh, here. No way. What's your uh, Portillo's on? They finally got it open. It was like six months late. It's on my way to the airport. So, Have you gone yet? No, I, I just saw that it was open coming back from a show Monday night. So tomorrow I'll go down there and, and have, get myself an Italian beef for, uh, for oh, lunch. Uh, I, I, have, I have such a vanilla Portillo's order. I get like a, a well-done cheeseburger with like nothing on it with onion rings and fries and a chocolate cake shake. It's very vanilla, but I haven't, it's more of a hangover meal. If I'm going to be completely honest, oh, well, like it's yeah, not, I get it. I get it. We had a hot topic prepared. I don't want to go ahead. What is it? Oh, it was about the streaming services. You want to do it? Okay. Well, for, for one thing, I, I have Netflix, but that's because I had it when, when I got the, when I could get the physical the DVDs I, I, when they, when they were mailing us. The DVDs because I have, I have an Apple and then I would just, I would rip movies. I get a thousand movies, right? But I don't watch them anymore. They're all on the server. The, the thing is, I don't watch a lot of TV, you know, podcasts and, and, uh, or, you know, time. I work too much. Things but I like, guess the topic, the, the topic there was more so that they, they're all raising their prices. Like Disney Plus, I remember I told you, like Disney took out Bob Iger. Uh, well, they brought back Bob Iger. Yeah, we, took we, out we, Bob Chapek. Uh, yeah, he, he, he chilly did the whole thing. And I yeah. told you that like a few days prior, I had just gotten an email and I was traveling at the time, but I had noticed that Disney Plus is always $7.99. I, I never noticed it. But then they sent an email saying they're raising it to $10.99. Then we get the news that Iger, uh, Chapek is out, Iger is in. And we kind of talked around like, what does that truly mean for, you know, a, a juggernaut like Disney to be operating on a deficit for their streaming platform where they've just churned out so much content over the years, but they don't seem to have a return. When we talked a little bit about Disney in particular, I, I think one of the issues is that they keep raising the price. There is an elasticity demand. There, there, there will be for me, even though, and God forbid, people have a Netflix account that they've got uh, their whole family using. When Netflix puts that in that each one has, they're going to see people just going to fall. I'm thinking they're, Because they're thinking, I'll, I'll pay 
1995 or whatever Netflix is, I'll pay it as long as five people can watch it. But if it's only one person can watch it, it's too expensive. They're going to get whacked. But but content is king. And so Disney is falling because the content that they have is not it doesn't appear to be as appealing to all the, the Disney services is not there. And I think everybody's going to raise it. it. It makes me it makes me think about I, I had direct TV. And directly, oh, those were the days. <laughs> subscribers are going down and down and down, right? And all they did was just keep it. It, it was like in in, the, in their wheezing, coughing, death throes uh, that they were. That they're just okay. That there are people who have Directv who don't know any better, or there's something on there that they're willing to pay for. We're just going to keep. We're, we're going to keep because it's not the elasticity of demand. We're just going to keep raising raising the price. I'm, I'm thinking that they have an economist over there uh, that that understands you know the Laffer curve, you know, and, and things like that. But but it makes you wonder. So so to your point, as they all raise the price, what's going to happen is they're going to have to consolidate one or well, that's some- what we saw over with CNN, CNN Plus, which is owned oh, by they- Warner. And HBO Max, which also has raised their price, I think by like $2 or so, they've absorbed a lot of the content, like the Chris Wallace show that's now showing up on HBO as a part of their wider offerings. Also bought what Discover or something. Discovery Plus. I can't can't keep up with it. But what the technologist in mind says is that, first off, there's a lot of crap on Netflix. There's stuff I would never, I go through and I I can look at 300 movies and I'm like, I don't want to watch this. Where's the, where's the new stuff? Where's the where's the whatever? They're, they they can't keep giving me pablum. And I you know and, and so I, I I've always questioned it. The second thing is is that there there's I, I have to believe that they're they're killing themselves by doing this because one day someone's going to go. You know what? At this price, I'm going to do artificial intelligence and do an experience. So I'm going to get the goggles and do all this kind of stuff. And I'm done. I'm done watching a movie. I'm going to participate in something. So they'll, they'll just take, they'll take that entertainment dollar and they'll go, they'll go do something else or, or they'll go, you know what? I'm going to go outside. I'm going to walk my dog. (laughs) Fresh air. (laughs) Fresh air. Something, something like that, that, because there's always, there's always choices, at least in, in this country. And, uh, and if it gets too high, then then it will fall precipit- precipitously because something else will replace it. Just like the streaming stuff is replacing. So so now I've got YouTube TV. Oh, so, you know, YouTube TV, to your point about being strict about, you know, how many people in different locations do you have access in your account? Yeah. My folks and family over in the West Coast in California, they let me on the YouTube TV. They kicked me off of it because I'm not in L.A. Oh, like insane, oh, but keep going. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, but I mean, and again, I'm a software guy. I understand licensing model. It's theft. I mean, it, it is priced so that you license things a certain way. So I don't, I don't want sharing. to share sharing. Sharing, all, all that kind of stuff. I will say this. There's never anybody from on that license simultaneously using it. It's always, you know, it, it could be me, but to the point i they will they will kill themselves they're going to the, the, there's a there's a calculus of the the profit is the is the volume under the curve and they'll be trying to drive the curve until it dies and then they'll be off to experiential stuff or they'll consolidate uh or they'll figure out how to do things cheaper and they'll start making movies that are look like like um the uh, what's what's the one that that just came out the the 
cost a billion dollars to make this all avatar avatar they'll all be like avatar right they'll figure out a way to do that they got sampling of all the actors that you want they just won't shoot on set they'll just make movies uh a la avatar on the computer and virtual reality and they'll, they'll cut their costs you know or whatever so something will happen well, you are the early adapter, so we will have to timestamp this one and see if it comes true. <laughs> Put it in a time capsule. Yeah. And so my last two questions, the first being, uh, any final words you have of advice for young professionals, entrepreneurs, dreamers uh, that are living through this moment in time and have just listened to this entire conversation, getting advice from someone who knows the last century very well and who has had a very successful career. Uh, any final words of advice? Okay. So three things. The first thing is always give yourself options. So wh- whatever you're doing, make sure that you're you're learning, you're you're positioning yourself, whatever, to have options because you don't want to be in a situation where you can only do one thing hmm. or you can do nothing. Give yourself options so you make choices uh, at the time. That that would be the first thing. I think the second thing would be work very hard at converting intent into actions. Lots of people. It's like uh, New Year's resolution. So I have the intent to do this. I had the intent to do that. Be be more intentional. Be more this. Be more that. No, do more things. Action. That no one looks back and say, "Wow, what a great year I had." I intended to do fifty things. No, they look back and say, "I had a great year. I intended to do twenty things, and I did them. I acted upon upon them." So so always convert intention to to action, and I think. Uh, the third thing is we're back to the Mila Angelou with uh, the listening yeah, is always work on your skills. If you're a professional, if if you look like at professionals in sports, the, the the ones that have longevity are always improving their skills and they're working on their weaknesses too. Now, if if you're in a partnership, it's always good to have complementary things. One guy's really good at accounting and and, and, and the girl's good at, uh, at sales and marketing, however that is. So it complements whatever, but always work on your, your skills. You have attributes that you're born with, um, but skills can always be, can learn, can be learned and improved. And, and you can always better yourself by working on those skills uh, and not always on your best skills, but, but often on, on the ones that you need to get better at. To, to be successful. So, so the constant, you know, read, you know, learn how to practice all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I think practicing sales stuff, doing fake sales calls with, with a friend, which I know you do, you and I have talked about, that's just brilliant, but because you, you, you wouldn't only take pitches when it's being thrown by a major league pitcher, you, you mm-hmm. take batting practice just to get your stroke, you know, that, that type of thing. So, so I, I think the, those things come to mind as the, as the top things that I would impart on. And then to you, what are you most looking forward to tomorrow? Mm. You know, again, the world's my oyster. I can go anywhere in the world. I'm an American, right? I have a passport and go anywhere in the world. I, I I've seen so much. My bucket list list isn't even touched. But tomorrow, you know, you work hard and you have options. Tomorrow might be a different option. Tomorrow is, is a new business opportunity. Tomorrow is something else that's that's because because from that point of view, I don't see myself retiring. I almost feel like a, a shark. Sharks have to keep swimming. And even when they're resting, they're typically in a place where a current is flowing through, right? So they're they're still in the mix. So uh so I don't I, I just look forward to 
What's next? And everybody, that was Brett Kilpatrick. I am doing you all a big favor because I have linked his website. I have linked his LinkedIn all below in the show notes. If you want to connect with him, if you want to hear more from him, he often uh, puts blogs on LinkedIn and I encourage you to go and show him some love. Again, thank you, Brett, for coming on the show and I'll see you all soon. Whoa, oh, oh.